If you were to go with me to Israel, if we were to travel to Jerusalem, there's many things in Jerusalem I could show you. And there's all kinds of new things I'm sure to discover that I haven't seen. But one place that we would go, one thing that I would show you is this place. We would go to this scene. We would, we would lay our hands on these stones. I call this the street of the stones thrown down. Now this particular, this is a place where you can go, and you see on the edge of the picture there, you can walk on a first century street right there along the Temple Mount, right there along the retaining wall. In fact, for you archaeology geeks, you can see the, the springers, the remnants of where Robinson's Arch, one of the main entryways into the Temple Mount, was connected up there on that wall. There were shops along the street opposite the retaining wall, and surely Jesus and his disciples would have walked along those pavements as he's teaching them about the things that are going on in the temple environs. And, and, but not only that, in the year 70 AD, when the Romans surrounded and captured Jerusalem, they, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the other buildings on the Temple Mount, the, the, the colonnaded um, porticos they're called, or stoas that were around at least three sides of that temple mount, and, and all of these stones were cast down. The, the uh, top of the temple mount and even parts of the retaining wall were just cast down, and all those stones piled up down below. And over the years since, a lot of those stones were reclaimed and repurposed in other building projects over the centuries. But some of them were left, and I think providentially, some of those stones were left so that you and I can still see them today. Now, why would that be the place that I, I would say we must see? A place where we must stand, maybe even sit on these stones, have a conversation. It's because this is the one place in Israel where you can go and you can see that the words of Jesus literally, historically were fulfilled. And what happened, just as he predicted it would happen, can still be seen today. There they are. Our Lord's word is true. And that doesn't prove that everything else he said is also going to be true. We know that simply because of who he is who said it. But it's a great object lesson. It's a great reminder that that which our Lord has said to us in his word, it's true. We can believe it. We can count on it. And you can stand there and touch real stones that still cry out in testimony that Jesus' word is true. What am I talking about? We'll turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is, is paralleled in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21. This chapter is known as the Olivet Discourse. There are three major teaching discourses of, of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, the, the, the first one earlier in his ministry is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the last one is the upper room discourse. It's only contained in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 13 through 16, and then the Lord's Prayer in chapter 17. But just prior to the upper room discourse is this one, and it's called the Olivet, the Olivet Discourse because most of it happens there on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, overlooking this temple mount. 
as he describes the things that are going to happen. But it starts down below in the temple, maybe on this street. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, and in the parallel gospels it talks about many of the disciples are saying this and that and ooing and aahing, but one in particular says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Wow. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. I don't know if that was a mic drop moment, but it was surely a jaw drop moment. Can you, can you see the disciples' mouths? This great temple? This beautiful, marvelous temple, the, 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 the grandest in the world, where the sacrifices and offerings of God as given to us in Moses continue to be carried out. This temple, God is going to allow it to be destroyed? When will that be? What's going on that that could happen? Tell us, they said, when will the... Oh, sorry, I, I skipped verse 3. And so when he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, there at the Mount of Olives, you look across the Kidron Valley, you see the Temple Mount and the rest of Jerusalem behind it. So they're looking at the Temple Mount. They're looking at the temple as Jesus is describing these things. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, privately tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? In the parallel in Matthew, that last part is broken up into two specific questions. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And there are two specific signs that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. And, boy, you've all read books. Perhaps you've seen them, you've read them, you've ordered them, you have maybe a shelf of them at home. The signs of the times. And every time some news, new thing happens in the news, you wonder, is this one of those signs of the times that the end is near and Jesus is coming and we hope it is? But it's not. There is one sign given in Scripture that the end of this age has come. There is one sign also given in Scripture that this is the definitive time sign for you to know that Jesus is coming. There's one for the end of this age. There's one for his coming. And neither of them are probably in those books that you have read. The books that you've read are full of, quote, signs of the times, but what they are describing is what Jesus said are going to be the normal occurrences in this broken age until he comes. In a broken age where even God's temple could be destroyed, cast down so that not one stone remains upon another. And so in, the, in, the, in, in Mark chapter 13, as well as in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Jesus gives us what the general signs of these times are going to be like. He tells us what is that definitive sign for you to know when this age is ending and his age is coming. God's kingdom is at hand. And what is the definitive sign with, with the, the danger of false prophets and false messiahs and even Antichrist himself putting up a great front 
How will you know for sure when Jesus, the true king, has returned? How will we recognize him? And there's one sign. So that's what we're going to unfold in these three, is we're going to look at these understanding the signs for these specific times. But then we also want to look at, well, so what? What for? What difference does it make? Why did Jesus give this to his disciples? To stay awake that we can stay ready. First of all, understanding the times, understanding specific signs. There are general signs of the end times, and those end times have continued from the time of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, even until today. It's a long, extended time now. We're almost 2,000 years in these last days. There's a lot of last days, aren't there? It's been a long time. God is patient in his waiting, but it will not, he will not wait forever. These, these, um, this general description is described in verses 5 to 8. Let me read there. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. The wars, the rumors of wars, they are not the signs of the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. And they continue. In various places, there will be famines, often caused by droughts. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. Now remember, Mark is writing, first of all, to the church at Rome, and then we've all benefited from that sense. Paul also wrote before Mark to the church at Rome, and he used that same language. In Romans chapter 8, when he was describing these current days, Paul wrote this in Romans 8.22, the whole creation is broken. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now the Pains of childbirth, that language, that, that image that Jesus uses as well, one of the things that's helpful about it is it's ongoing. And sometimes, sometimes, as I see one baby going out and another one going this way, sometimes you know that those labor pains can be long. They keep going. And you wonder, is the baby ever going to come, especially the poor dear mama who's in the middle of it? But they have to end. The labor pains cannot continue forever. They do bring their end of that new life that is brought forward. But the pain before then, the trouble and the trial before then, these are reminders of the brokenness of our present world. There will be pestilence. There will be pandemics. There will be earthquakes. There will be fires. There will be killer hornets here in Washington State. There will be climate change. There will be droughts. There will be famines. We are broken people in a broken world, a sin-cursed world that is not as God created it. It is not as God intended. It is now with thorns and thistles that we will do our farming and agriculture. That Imagine the most beautiful places, and here in the Northwest, boy, we've got a corner on it, don't we? Imagine some of the most beautiful places. In fact, this hike, this backpack trip that Ryan is leading, going to Indian heaven, it's called that for a reason. It looks beautiful up there. Imagine some of those meadow scenes in Bambi in real life. No, men, don't bring your guns. We're not going hunting up there. But it is beautiful. The alpine meadows and lakes. 
And yet, the best that you have seen in the beauty of God's creation is less than it should be. It's broken down. It's messed up. It looks something like that street in Jerusalem. It is not as God intended, and it is not as it will be. Broken down versions of what God will transform and renew and recreate. We are in a time, we are in an age of general trouble and brokenness in this creation and in humanity. And that age is going to be, have particular impact among those who intend to follow Jesus, those who believe in him and want to follow him. He says in verse 9, be on your guard then. And we're going to come to that phrase again, be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations. Does that describe your experience of church as normal? That was the experience of church as normal in the book of Acts in the first century, wasn't it? That reads just like the book of Acts. That's exactly what happened. And that has been exactly what has happened through periods of church history ever since then. It's not that all of church history has been like that, and much of our experience has, been like, has, has not been like that. We are not often thrown in jail, although even in our generation, some pastors are thrown in jail for various reasons, for things said that is considered hate speech or for holding a service at a certain way or at a certain time. But, but it's not like as described here, not currently. We live at a time in our history where our society has been influenced by what I call the remnants of the Reformation. And we still benefit from that. But much of the world does not. In much of the world, Christians are still treated just like as described here. And if the Lord tarries, I would not be surprised if that, that more normal experience is again our experience as well. That's, that's going to be normal in the course of history. We should expect not necessarily constant persecution, but we should expect trouble and trials instead of ease. I know you were hoping to hear that this morning, right? Let me tell you how to make sense of that in terms of our present experience. Let me Jesus in this chapter will give you the parable of the fig tree. So I want to give you the parable of the blackberries. Julie and I went blackberry picking yesterday. Now, blackberry picking is different from one year to the next. Yesterday was not a great, this is not a great season for blackberries. As we were picking the blackberries, we saw they were fewer and they were smaller. And some of them are already dried up while they're still hanging on the vines. It's great. You can pick dehydrated blackberries. They're ready for your granola. But we didn't want them for our granola. We wanted them for a pie. And so you're looking for the big, fat, juicy ones. You know the ones you kind of touch and they just fall off the vine right into your bowl? That's what we were looking for. But it was hard to find those places. You had to find a shady corner of the vine, maybe where there was more water that those roots were getting or something. And there were some of those to be had. But blackberry picking yesterday was not like blackberry picking has been in previous seasons. This was a particular poor season for blackberries because it has been so stinking hot, right? It has been so dry. Where's the rain? Who thought that we would be asking for rain? It's not a good season for blackberries. Maybe next year will be better. Previous years have been better. It ebbs and flows, and yet all the way through, whenever you pick blackberries all through this life, you're going to find what? There will be thorns. If you're going to go after blackberries, if you want the pie, you will experience the thorns. 
they will latch on to you along the way. And not only that, but there's these little tiny seeds that get stuck in your teeth. And yet, the blackberries are worth it. We will endure all those things that are wrong about blackberry picking because last night, the pie was worth it. It really was. Well, there is a sweetness of the Lord's people in his will, even in the midst of a world that is still full of thorns that will cut you and seeds that will annoy you and get stuck in your teeth. The parable of the blackberry in terms of the time of, the, of these seasons at present. So to understand the time that we're living in generally is different than we might expect. It's a time of trouble rather than ease. And so he says in verse 11, They will bring you on trial and deliver you over, and do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So he say, oh good, I don't need to study, I don't need to be prepared, I don't need to memorize any, any truth from Scripture, because at the time when I'm brought before to give an answer for why I believe in Jesus, as the Lord said to Jeremiah, open your mouth and I will fill it. God will just tell me something in the moment. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not what Peter says. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 to be ready to give an answer when you're asked for the hope that you have. That hope that we have in Jesus that is contrary to the expectations of the present age, we need to be ready to give an answer for it, to explain it. Why do I hope in him? Why do I believe this when we're asked? But I think Jesus is warning us against a planned, canned response. This is what I say to anybody, anytime. That if they say this, then I'll say that. And if I, pigeon, if I put them in this pigeonhole, then this is, the, this is what I say to them. A canned response that will fit whatever situation. Those can be exhausting, first of all, to try to remember. But also it neglects the greatest advantage you and I have in the midst of this world in our witness to others, and that is the indwelling presence of God's Spirit within us. That spirit whom Jesus said, he will bring to your remembrance all the things that I have told you. So that if we take God's word, and if we drink it in, if we take God's word and hide it in our heart, he will bring the right things to remembrance in the situation. What we need to practice is being filled with the spirit. We need to practice being led by the Spirit in the midst of circumstances to listening to His voice concerning what truth is needed in this moment for this person because He knows something about their heart that I cannot. And so certainly there's, a, there's a, a, an urging here for us to, to rely on God rather than our own insights, our own understanding, even in times of trial and our testimony in the midst of it. But how long will that go on? What is the sign that this age and its brokenness, what is the sign that the thorns are going to be ended? We come to that in verse 13. But, in contrast to that character of this age and the troubles of it, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then, he, then Mark adds in parentheses, let the reader understand what Jesus is saying here. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He goes on to talk about the the troubles that it's going to have. Matthew, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he goes on to add, and pray that it's not in the Sabbath, because then they're going to be hindered, because transportation is very limited on the Sabbath day. Mark doesn't include that. He's writing to, to, to the church in Rome. They don't have Sabbath laws there. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. That's an interesting phrase that Mark includes there. It suggests to us that Bible prophecy, truth about the end times, should be understood. These are things that we're supposed to understand, even if they're difficult to understand. This is truth that is given to the church for a reason. We should understand. Our Lord intends us to understand. You know, there's a, there's a tendency in the church today to neglect end times truth. And I think we've arrived there fairly. We have spent too much time arguing about end times truth and theory that we got tired of arguing, and so we just don't talk about it at all. But there's a whole lot about the coming of the Lord that the evangelical church shares together in the hope of his coming. And to understand the hope of his coming is the, God's means of strengthening us to endure in the present. He says the one who endures to the end will be saved. How will we endure? How will we hold on? Well, that same word of understanding God's promise, of understanding God's future, that same word is given to Daniel when the angel comes to him to understand the vision that he had that he doesn't understand. When, when the Lord Jesus comes to John in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, that he would understand these things that are going to come about so that as he understands them, and as we understand the grand hope of the book of Revelation, that our Lord is coming to make all that is wrong right. He will judge the earth and he will renew it. He will restore it to all that he intended it to be for us with him. Understanding that hope is what fuels our faith in the presence. So we don't want to be ignorant concerning the future. Let the reader understand is why we focus on God's word. The best preparation for enduring to the end is an alert or wakeful understanding and faithfulness in the presence. You see, understanding our hope fuels our faithfulness in the presence. Understanding our hope in the future fuels our faithfulness in the presence. It is important. We should understand. What is this whole thing about the abomination of desolation? And this thing about the abomination of desolation is something that, that Matthew also points us in the right direction. He makes a little... A, a, a little clearer because Jesus also says that abomination of desolation which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So we would go back to Daniel. We'd go to Daniel 9 and chapter 11 and that's where we'll read about it. So let me put that up on the screen. I want to turn there and lose our place as we wade through a lot of Daniel prophecy. We talked about Daniel about a year ago, but let me just remind you of this, that there is this antichrist, this world ruler figure in the, in the end times who is going to rule much of the world, and he's going to be, there's going to be a revived empire out of those previous beasts that are part of Daniel's visions, but he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. 
Now, week, that refers to that, that whole channel in, in, in Daniel chapter 9 of these 70 weeks of Daniel, these 70 sevens of years. So there's one final, a 70th seven-year period. We know it in prophecy as the tribulation period. So stick with me there. He will make a strong covenant with many for seven years, and for half of the week he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. There's the, what Daniel writes calling an abomination that makes desolate, but we don't know what it is. We get a precursor of it in history that Daniel is given in Daniel chapter 11. Now, Daniel chapter 11 is not yet at this point talking about the Antichrist. He's talking very specifically about a series of kings of the north in Syria named Antiochus somebody, one, two, three, and four, some of them. And then there are kings in the south um, um, that, that, that are named Ptolemy somebody. And there are several generations of them. And they keep fighting back and forth between one another. These are the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. As all this is going on, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, he comes down and he wants to attack Egypt. But Rome steps in and says, no, you don't. You're not going any farther. And he's frustrated. He's angry. He's mad. He's got to save face. But he's turned away from Egypt. So what's he going to do? He comes back going north through Israel and comes to Jerusalem and he takes the temple of Jerusalem. And Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Manifest, is what that means. He believed that he was the earthly manifestation of the Greek god Zeus. And so what he does is he, he takes the temple in Jerusalem and he puts a statue of Zeus there that looks remarkably like Antiochus. He takes a statue of himself and calls it Zeus and demands that the Jews in Jerusalem worship him as the god Zeus in their temple. And it creates, uh, it's a mess. That, that creates the Maccabean revolt. There's a whole lot of history that surrounds about that and how God moves and protects. But, but this desolation described in Daniel 11.31, they take away the regular burnt offering, they offered pigs on the altar instead, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus' establishment of that statue was a precursor of what this abomination that makes desolate in the final seven-year period is going to look like. Now with that in mind, go to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians, another church that is planted in the midst of much persecution against the testimony of Jesus. And yet, this church, there are some, is so intense that they think the Lord's coming must be at hand. This must be the time of his return. In fact, this is already God's judgment upon the earth that the day of the Lord is already happening. That's what's being written. Paul says, don't pay attention to letters that are coming to you as if they're sent from us that are saying the day of the Lord has already come. You see, even in the first century, people were writing crazy books about end times prophecy. Still happening today. But Paul says, that can't happen. The day of the Lord won't happen. His judgment and the establishing of his kingdom will not happen unless this comes first. Unless the rebellion... The apostasia is the Greek word, so it's a rebellion against God's truth. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In the coming last seven-year period of this present history, 
the Antichrist is going to allow temple sacrifices to resume. But then, halfway through this seven-year covenanted period, that Israel actually makes a covenant with Antichrist. Those who as a people have a covenant with the Lord himself, they form a covenant with Antichrist that allows their sacrifices to be resumed there at the temple in Jerusalem. Halfway through, the mask comes off. And he says, nope, we're going to stop all that. This temple is for me. I am God, and I will be worshipped as God in this temple. And at that moment, all hell breaks loose on earth. And from that day, in that second half of that tribulation period, is going to be far worse than it has been up until then. That is the mark that the last three and a half years are at play And the time is limited. The time is short. This is how you know the end of this age is at hand. When somebody stands up in the temple in Jerusalem and says, I am God, worship me. That is the sign. Why is that such a big deal? Why that? That's the culmination of of human history from Genesis 3. When humanity believed the lie that you can be as God's determining what's good or evil, right and wrong for yourself. You can be like God. And now a human, this Antichrist personage, empowered by Satan himself, will stand up in this temple and declare that he is God and he shall be worshipped. It's the culmination of sinfulness that started in the garden. Let me give you an overview of that from a chart I have of the tribulation period. We are in the current church age. It's been almost 2,000 years. There's a lot of of years in these last days, a lot of days. We don't know how long that'll take until that seven-year tribulation starts. We'll know when the tribulation is halfway through when this sign is fulfilled. That is the one sign that will not be mimicked, will not be copied. When that happens, it's go time. And there's three and a half years left. That's the time of great tribulation. That's the time when Jesus says it will be greater trouble on the earth than there ever has been up till that time, and nor ever will be. Nothing that has happened on earth. Think of the worst times in human history. Black Plague, World War I, World War II. This will be worse for three and a half years. They'd destroy the earth if God didn't bring it to a shorter end. And then... Well, how will, will, will that end come? But, but first of all, as, as we're talking about that, there's something else I want, to, I want to think about here for a minute. Let's go ahead and put that image away. The, the, he says, let the reader understand. And we need to understand, this is the sign that's coming, that abomination of desolation, and how it connects to human sinfulness and human humanity putting ourselves in God's place all through human history culminates in exactly that. And maybe that's what we ought to understand as well. That you and I still have a tendency at times to put our will over God's way. But whenever it is that we put, we need to understand, let the reader understand that whenever we are insisting on our will over what we know to be God's way, and you've heard it, you've done it yourself. I know this is what God has me to do, but in this time, in this moment, I want to do what I want to do. I determine that in this time and in this moment, what I want to do is going to be better for me than what God says. We've been there. But when we go there, when we set our will over God's ways, the rotted 
carrion scent of antichrist abomination is in the air. When we assert our will over God's ways, we are no longer following our Savior. We are following the way of Antichrist instead. So understand what the tendency of our age is to exalt our will over God's way. And that's what we need to be alert to resist. But that age will end, and this is what it's going to look like when that comes to an end. In these days, verse 19 in those days, after Antichrist was revealed, there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, nor ever will be, but it will end. Look at verse 24. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and this is described in Revelation 16 as well. I don't know what it is that's going to cause this to happen. I don't know if somebody's going to reach up and pull a large pull chain there in the heavens and it goes ka-chunk and the sun goes out. Or whether there is so much debris filling the atmosphere that no light from the heavens can penetrate through. I don't know just how this is going to happen. But from our perspective on the earth, it is going to be dark. It is going to be dark, dark. It is going to be so dark that you could almost reach out and touch it. There will be no sunlight. There will be no moonlight. There will be no stars visible. It will be dark. And with all the calamity that has been poured out in those, in those trumpet judgments and those bowl judgments in the, book of, in the book of Revelation by chapter 16, it describes this same darkness. And in the midst of that darkness... As the world turns and rotates, and as people in the midst of the night are looking for a sunrise that does not come, they see it. They see it. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There as the world rotates, and as each portion of the world comes around to that, sun, to that direction from which he is approaching. The, the approach of our Lord to this earth in all of his Shekinah glory cuts through that darkness so that every eye can see it and it doesn't have to be on CNN. I don't think there's any TV working by this point. I think it's all a mess, but everyone will see his approach. It'll be like a, a, a train coming down the tracks and there you are stuck on the tracks and you see that headlight off in the distance and it gets closer and it gets closer and it gets bigger and it gets brighter and the glory of the Lord in his return breaks through and there he is and nobody will miss his coming. He says don't, don't, don't go here or there thinking that, that here is the Christ or there he is. Every eye will see him. He will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of earth to the ends of heaven. And now from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, when you see that abomination of desolation, and when you see the brightness of his coming, even afar off, know that his return is at hand, even at the city gates. You see, this is going to be the very worst time of human history. 
When that abomination of desolation happens, and after that, it's going to be so bad on earth that people could despair of life itself. They'll wish they were dead. Believers would wish they were dead if it were not for the hope that they know in the promise of Jesus' coming. Any that are remaining during that period of time. When it seems that things are at their absolute worst is the time when God's promise is going to reach its absolute best. And Jesus will come and he will restore and all that is wrong on earth will be made right. That's our confidence in him. In the midst of things not being as they are, we know that they will be just as he said that they would be. But what does that do for us in the meantime? What does that do for us? Remember that phrase, be on your guard? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait for those signs to be fulfilled? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 32, But concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels, not the Son, only the Father. But you, verse 33, be on your guard. There it is again. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each one with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. You know, it's kind of like when somebody goes on a trip and they have somebody house sit for them. And they're not sure when, they're, when the work's going to be done, when they're going to be able to return. They don't know what flight they're going to catch. It could be at morning. It could be at noon. It could be in the evening. It could be a red eye in the middle of the night. It could be at the crack of dawn. I don't know when, but don't bolt the door. Be ready to open it. And imagine that traveler. He comes in, and it's the middle of the night. It's been a late flight, and he is, he's dead tired. He can't wait to be home and in his own bed again. And he, and he, he arrives in the airport. He stumbles through. He gets his bag. He, he, he finds an Uber that's still driving at that time of night, and he gets home, and he drags himself out of the car, and he pulls up to the front door and it's bolted from the inside. He knocks on the door, he rings the bell, but he can't get in because his house sitter has bolted the door to keep himself safe and is comfortably asleep. So what does the, home, what does the master of the house do? What does the homeowner do? He sleeps on the front porch waiting till morning. And imagine the conversation they're going to have. Jesus says, think about that analogy. Verse 35, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, midnight, when at the crack of dawn or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Awake. What's his point? What are we to do with that? What does it mean then to stay awake? It doesn't mean just don't sleep anymore. What is he saying for us to be alert about, to have understanding about, that we would walk rightly in this dangerous age when there is much to distract us, when there is much to entrap us? What is it to stay alert, to stay awake? to continue in our master's will until he comes. Well, out of this chapter, there are several that I, I pulled together. The first would be, don't follow false prophets with false promises. 
There are many who would tell you today that God just wants to bless you and prosper you. Because you are a Christian, because you are a child of the King, you shouldn't experience illness or poverty or anything bad. Anything time that happens, it's probably just a lack of faith because God just wants to bless you. God wants everything to be unicorns and roses for you. That's not what he has told us. He has told us of the character of the age. And he has told us of of how followers of him will be treated in the midst of this age. It will vary season to season, just like the blackberries. But don't follow false prophets with false promises. There will be pain. There will be loss. There will be betrayal. And that does not mean his word is not true. He told us it would be like it. Those things confirm that his word is true. And that we're not home yet. His promise has not been realized yet. Along with that, don't be panicked by fears and rumors. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be real troubles that you have to face because the war is in your midst. There'll be other troubles that you hear about and that you worry about. Don't we worry about things that don't happen? I think it was Mark Twain that said, I spent much of my life worrying about things that never occurred. We worry about a lot of things that don't happen. Jesus said, the troubles of the day are enough. But don't be panicked by fears and rumors that cause us to react and to self-preserve and to look out for ourselves instead of extending ourselves to others in their needs. This last year and a half with COVID-19 has been a good learning experience for us of both extremes of that. Of being overly fearful and panicked from a danger or being in self-denial that there is any danger at all. Neither one of those has been true. There has, is danger that has been ignored at people's own peril. At the same time, there has been extra fear and panic stirred up to serve other agendas. Don't be panicked by fears and rumors that cause you to react and self-preserve instead of, I can trust the Lord with myself. I can trust the Lord with my eternity. I can give what I might otherwise hold on to for my own security. I can release that for the sake of others. How to be on guard, how to be alert, how to be awake. Don't settle in. Delays in Jesus' coming can lead us to complacency, can lead us into comfort-seeking. I was confronted by this in my last visit to Zimbabwe and realizing it's not as comfortable here as it is at home. You know, things like hot and cold running water on demand don't always happen, or it didn't at first when we were first there. We had to help them get some of those things working. It just wasn't as comfortable as at home. The roads were not as comfortable to drive on. And I'd just rather stay here. I've got a nice bed. I've got running water. I've got that new shower I worked on. Got nice roads that are smooth, except for those stupid speed humps. We easily get comfortable and complacent. Settling in for the long haul. It's been a long time. Let's just rest a little bit. If we think the world's going to continue just as it has been, we're going to ourselves adjust, adapt, and live by the rules of the present world instead of living in this world as a light to the next. Instead of living in this world as one who prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, at least in my life. 
to be alert, to be on your guard, to be awake, is to don't forget who you work for. The master of the house will come. The master of the house will come, and all will answer to him, even if it doesn't seem like it in the present. Psalm 2 reminds me of that. The nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, We will not have this king rule over us. And the Lord in heaven laughs. You know, silly people. I will set my king on my holy hill of Zion, the Lord says. He will work his purposes whether humanity likes it or not. The master of the house is coming. Even if it seems that the inmates are in charge of the asylum for now, that is only for now. The master is coming. Don't forget who you work for. And so we value rewards that will come from him rather than the rewards we might be distracted by today. Remember Daniel in Daniel chapter 5? When Belteshazzar wants to give him rewards even to be the third ruler in his kingdom? What a grand honor that he's giving to Daniel to be the third ruler in his kingdom. Daniel says, I don't want it. You can give that to somebody else. Why? Because Daniel knows that that kingdom is about to end and that very night it does. Daniel's not living for Babylon's kingdom. Daniel is living for God's kingdom to come. And most dangerous of all, don't be overly impressed with the achievements of man. I remember times when this small-town country boy first visited some major cities. And I wasn't terribly impressed by the steel and glass skyscrapers. What really caught my attention were the buildings a little bit older but huge, made from stone, stone fitly, finely fitted together and towering over me, these mammoth buildings of stone. How could this be done? I was amazed at the achievements of humanity. You look into science and medicine today and it's amazing what humans are capable of but in the midst of all these wonderful things and advances that God has given us the ability to do as creative people made in his image to have dominion over this broken creation and yet don't be overly impressed with the achievement of man look back to the disciples at the start of this chapter they are ooing and aahing over these wonderful buildings, just like Bob in the big city. And yet, who are they telling this to? God himself, the creator incarnate, the one who says, the, of who it is said, the word became flesh and tabernacled, there's that temple word, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only unique one from the Father. And to him... They are bragging about this house that Herod had built. You know Herod, the Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant. That Herod who built this temple, that's what they're ooing and aahing about when the very presence of God dwelling in humanity is sitting before them. Isn't it amazing? How easily we get our eyes off of our Lord and onto humanity. 
I remember when the first year Jill and I were married, we were in Spokane, part of a, a church there. We were in a small group there. Yes, that's a plug for small groups. We were part of a small group there, and the sm our small group met in the home of this man who was an architect and builder of custom homes. He built very nice homes, mansions uh, for wealthy people. And he took us, he, he took some of us one day to see these new homes that he was building, and they were fantastic. They were gorgeous. They weren't finished yet, but you could tell. And they were sighted just out looking over the valley and the river. Oh, these were going to be gorgeous places. But in the midst of walking through this yet unfinished home, Pastor Ken just kind of steps aside with me at one point. He says, Bob, don't get too enthralled about things like this. It's not going to last. I don't remember exactly how he said that, but that was the tone. He wasn't, he wasn't putting down at all this wonderful home that his friend was building. And yet, we are destined for things better than this, things that will last. And that he took the time to tell a young man in his first year of marriage, be careful what you set your eyes on. When we are over-impressed by our own ability and humanity, we look to ourselves and away from God. How did that play out in the first century? It looked to humans who were looking to Rome to be the answer to their needs, to provide for that which they needed, to give them security, to preserve their lives from outside attack. Today it might look the same. What is it that we trust the Lord for? Or what do we instead trust our government for? To provide for us, to keep us safe, to keep us secure, to give us what we need. It's interesting, the same idea of staying alert, staying awake, looking for his coming instead of to this present age, is Paul's tone in Romans chapter 13. It's interesting because that's the same chapter that gives us the purpose the, the good and right purpose of human government in the midst of it. And yet in Romans 13, 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I'm reminded of that elderly lady, Anna, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was brought to the temple, she came up that very hour. And how she is described, I think, is the epitome of our role as the church in the midst of society while we wait. It says this of her in Luke 2.38. At the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Are we comfortable and settled in the present? Or are we waiting expectantly for God's coming redemption? Oh, that we would be known, you and I, in the midst of our world, in our corners of it, in our neighborhoods and work, that we would be known as those who give thanks to God and who speak of Jesus and his coming redemption. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of much that is good in our present world, but also in the midst of much that is wrong and broken. Lord, would you yet let these things that are broken, these things that are wrong, the needs for redemption be reminders to we, your people, 
of where our future is. And let us use our understanding of who you are and what you will do. Lord, let us be alert and awake to use that as light in the darkness to people around us, that we might point them to hope in you as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.